Hey, welcome back to the All In Podcast. And this week we are joined by ultra distance runner, expedition athlete, and founder of Impossible to Possible, Ray Zahab. Ray has traveled over 17,000 kilometers across the world's deserts and unsupported expeditions in some of the coldest places on the planet. I'm sure that you will be inspired and captivated by his stories and mindset just as much as I was. This is your host, Natalie Allport, and on this podcast, we dive into the mindset, knowledge, and stories behind inspiring and passionate individuals who know what it takes to go all in. So whether you're here for motivation, to learn something new, or just real conversation, I'm humbled you're listening and stoked to go all in with you. Awesome. So this week I have Ray on the podcast. Now, Ray is an ultra distance runner. He does crazy expeditions and he is also the founder of Impossible to Possible. I, I don't want to spoil this story by giving this whole intro, but can you just walk me through to start things off before we get right into the expeditions? You went from a pack a day smoker to doing these crazy things that people cannot even imagine. How, how did you get there? Well, you know what? I could spend an hour just talking about <laughs> answering that one question. But truthfully, you know, I got there and I and, and I know this sounds like I'm making a pun out of it, but one step at a time. And I and I've often told people it's been a long process, right? And we're I'm 20 years into doing what I do full time. Um 20 years from day one, I guess you could say. But you know, being someone who was a very unhealthy person, who was um a non-completer of anything that I started. And I, and I, you know, I was, I, I guess to answer your question, I, you know, I was in my late twenties going on 30 and had no goals, had no excitement, had no passion, had just a series and sequences of failures that, of, of things that I just never felt I could get moving in life. And I decided that I had to make a change. And it was my younger brother who's an amazing athlete and a strength coach with, uh, with continuum fitness. He is a big time athlete and, um, you know, was into Ironman triathlons and rock climbing and paddling and all these things that were outdoor sports that were not sports. Like when I grew up in yeah, the seventies like and eighties, right? Yeah. It's like, that's what all sports were. Right. So, you know, with the occasional Olympics splattered in every four years or whatever. Right. So, you know, I wasn't used to seeing these things he was doing and it was changing him who he was. I was making mm. him so confident and stoked to, about every day that I thought, wow, I just want to feel a little bit like him. So I knew what stood in the way of me having the life he had was that I was smoking a pack a day, um, drinking way too much, partying all the time. I mean, I was just <laughs> doing everything that was non-conducive to his lifestyle. So that took me three years to shift okay. my mindset and change my life. And then the rest, they say, is history. One thing led to another. After I quit smoking, I sort of rediscovered myself and I discovered that I had an engine that I never knew I had, that my brother wow. had. And it was this weird, like, it was like, almost like I was reborn. I'm like, what the hell, where'd this come from? Right. And, you know, that led me to different things. You know, when you open a door and especially if it's a positive door, like if you're living in a certain way and you're like, you know, passionate about what you do, it just, other things happen in your life. You just, it's just, it's the way it goes. Right. Yes. And so that led me to ultra running, which led me to expeditions and and here we are today. But I've often been asked, what's the hardest thing I've ever done? And people always assume that I'm going to say it's when I ran across the Sahara Desert, um, which for your listeners that, that don't know what I'm talking about, that was a 7,500 kilometer run in 111 days across the Sahara, right? And you would think with 70K a day average for 111 days, that, that obviously would be the hardest thing that I've done. But the hardest thing was that quitting smoking. Like those early mm. days, those first three years when I had to change my mind, of what I was capable of. That was really hard. So every difficult things in life and challenge in life are very relative to the individual. Yeah. You can't necessarily compare your experience and how something feels to you with anyone else. And it's just like the great things that you do. You know, the great things that you do in your life is very hard to explain to someone how good it feels. You know, I've seen people, well, I know this. When we reach the East Coast of of Africa. And we spent all that time running across the Sahara. I was in such disbelief that I actually made it. Like I couldn't <laughs> believe that I made it. And the feeling I had was the exact same feeling of when I ran in a training run, my very, one of my very first runs with a friend of mine. And it was a five kilometer training run. And I didn't have to take a walking break. The mm. exact same feel. There was no difference. So it's relative, right? 
That's so true because I think in a lot of sports, people think as I get better, it's going to get easier. And that's not necessarily true. As you get better, you start taking on these harder challenges. For example, in the sport of CrossFit, people look at the CrossFit Games athletes, they think, wow, when they do workouts, it must be so easy for them. They're not feeling this pain or experiencing this, you know, grueling, um, exhausting workout, but they are because they're pushing at a faster pace. Maybe they're getting a faster time or they're doing a heavier weight in the workout or different things like that. And so I think think it's important that it's like it's not necessarily that the work will get easier it's that you will get stronger mentally and physically I agree with that completely I think that it's just you know it again you're it's a relative snapshot and a moment in your life right yeah. and that athlete like you know you see the Instagram post of the person in the CrossFit you know games whatever flipping that giant tire <laughs> or whatever right and it's not that they're making it look easy but the image is a still image. And right away, the person sees the strength in that person and thinks, wow, you know, like you said, it must be easy or lifting heavy things must be, but that person is continuing to strive to the next level. And it's just a moment in time when that photo was taken, you know? Right. Yeah. Can you walk me back to like, what was your childhood like that kind of led to these maybe habits that weren't serving you? Um, And then you've already talked about kind of how you've changed them from there. Well, it was a different time, right? It was the seventies and the eighties. So completely different time. There was no social media, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, we lived in the country. Uh, We wanted, my brother and I, we wanted to go play with friends. You know, you had to cross like a 25 acre hayfield, And that was our first like friends that were our age, right? The others were all kilometers away. So, you know, we had a great life. We grew up on a, on a smaller farm. We, it was amazing. My parents were awesome. Um, You know, you just, you, you chart your own path. I mean, in a lot of ways, right after, and uh, you know, I just started making bad decisions at a younger age. And so uh, those sort of precipitate, it's like a snowball be in life. Slipping into a negative stream is like a warm sleeping bag in the Arctic. It's just easy to get into and you don't want to get out. Once mm-hmm. you're in that negative space, it's very hard to get out. I've always said that and I believe this, and I've kind of learned it on expeditions, is that the the most difficult challenges in life are sometimes the more most rewarding, right? Like the things when you when you face adversity or you have to go through something. So being happy, w- along with with my unhealthy lifestyle, I was a very unhappy person, like genuinely unhappy. Like you know, you you wake up and it's a gray cloudy day outside. So you assume it's going to rain. Now I wake up if it's cloudy out, I'm thinking I don't have to worry about getting a sunburn or something. You know what I mean? Like you have a, you have a tinge to how you look at things. So I think you just sort of get there. You, it's not like one day you just say, I'm going to just be negative all the time. You just kind of yeah. get there. And then that builds on, on, on itself. So then you have to work at being happy and that's very work at being happy, work at being satisfied with yourself work at having confidence. You have to work at all these things. But once you achieve those things, then you have more of a solid platform to build on. Right. So I didn't have any of those things. It just sort of just, there's no reason. You know what I mean? It just kind of happened. Right. Right. I think, yeah, it's like these things snowball and just like how negative decisions snowball and become easier to do. You can rewire and build these, these better patterns. And like you said, it took you three years to get to that point. Do you ever, like, is there any point where, because you have been in these negative patterns so often that sometimes it can be easy to fall back into them? Or is it now that these positive habits are so ingrained over, you know, your 20 years of doing this, that it just, it's easy for you to make those positive decisions every day now? I think you you get better at the cues over time. Right. So you know you you start to uh, you 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 start to become I don't want to say comfortable, but you start to understand what feeling good is like, and you have a very keen awareness of what feeling bad is like. So it's like I've used this analogy many times. It's like walking into a room, and it's pitch dark. It's a room, you know, but it's pitch dark but you don't have to look for the light switch. You can just instinctively flick it on, right? Cause mm-hmm. you kind of know where it is. So you have the capacity to turn things around. So you always, you're not human if you're not feeling emotions one way or the other. And also you can't have extreme highs if you don't have lows, right? right? They're just, they, it's, it's like gravity, <laughs> you know, you yeah. need one versus the other. So, um, I think that you learn the tools of how to stay 
mentally in a place that you need to be relative to your life. Right. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And it kind of, it reminds me everything that you've been telling me of, of uh, a quote that I saw recently. And it was about, if you want to, you know, achieve something in your life or break from these negative habits, the easiest way to do that is to change your environment. Because if you're around, you know, other people who are supporting this partying or um, smoking, or it's very hard to go against the grain and do this. Would you, um, like, how has it been like for you? You know, for example, you have an ultra marathoner as a wife. Um, does that really help in your environment of, you know, being held accountable to these standards, having other people around you who are into similar positive habits? No, I don't know if it does. I think that okay. then, then right away, I mean, look, look, I mean, okay. So it's kind of a yes, no answer. I, I think it's less about what someone does and more about a values that that maybe you share with people that are around you, right? Like what I've learned in my vast age now <laughs> is that, you know, relationships and friendships and all, there has to be a reciprocation and there has to be a commonality in how you treat one another and support one another in different times. Because you're going to have good times, you're going to have bad times. But your friends and the people you surround yourself with, there has to be a give and take with those people. There has to be, you can't always be the one doing the calling. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And I think that that's more important than having things in common. I have lots of friends that have nothing to do with running or adventure or anything else. Friends that are artists, friends that are writers, friends that have completely different interests. But the where we sort of align is in how we treat one another or how we value our friendships. Right. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. support networks don't have, support networks don't necessarily have to be in what it is that you do. So, you know, my wife, Kathy, yeah, she runs, but she didn't always, you know, when we first met, she, she wasn't running ultras. Um, she's a scientist. She's in, she does sciencey things for a living. I obviously don't, I'm an <laughs> explorer. Right. So we have vastly different styles, but you know, the people that, you know, that you and, and others, uh, I think if you look at the relationships that you have, friendships, et cetera, that are the most solid, they're, they're not based in, they're not necessarily, it could be a CrossFit friend, but they're not necessarily just the people you know at the CrossFit gym. Yeah. There's other friends that you have that are like, they can't believe what you do and they respect what you do, but they have no interest in doing what you do, you know? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a lot. Of, I, yeah, I would say a lot of those is great, but I think aligning on some level, like you mentioned, where um, these people are also maybe into holding themselves to a certain standard or share the same values, I think is, is important. I, I just, I've seen in my life, for example, when you see someone and they get in with say a bad crowd, it's very hard for them to all of a sudden, you know, be the only one in that crowd who's making the positive decisions when everyone else necessarily isn't. So they don't have to necessarily find, you know, okay, now I'm into CrossFit and I only hang out with CrossFit friends, but maybe, you know, maybe people who don't smoke or who are trying to also uh, change from, from smoking yeah, it, a packet it, it, Absolutely. It, it, when you're talking about those things specifically, yeah, for sure. It makes a difference. If you're uh, someone who smokes and you don't want to smoke anymore and you're hanging out with a bunch of smokers, you're gonna have a hard time quitting smoking, right? <laughs> you're obviously setting yourself up for disaster. So there are times when those rules apply for sure, you know, but I'm saying from a, like a different perspective from like that passion perspective, perhaps, right. although I do have friends that are incredible explorers and they're some of the best friends that I have. So yeah, it goes both ways, right? Yeah. No, oh, awesome. So I want to, yeah, I'm really excited to dive into your expeditions and hear some of these stories because doing these expeditions and every time I hear anyone talk about them, it just, it gets me so excited. And it's something that I've even thought about like getting into on some level. Personally, I am not someone with a huge aerobic engine. I am like a, like if you ask me to go and build up to a 300 pound squat and I haven't squatted in six months, it doesn't take me long to get there. My, my muscle tone and my build is a little bit different. It's like the other end of, of the spectrum, but I, I really enjoy, like I, I talked to you before we even hit record about how I like going cross country skiing and, and doing some of these things. So, um, it just, I'm so excited to hear about these things. Where are some of the, like, what are the coolest places that you've been and kind of walk me through the different expeditions and then we can dive into some of them further. Well, I've done many, many expeditions. I've probably, I, I, I we've tried to add it up over the years. I mean, I'm, I'm somewhere between 17 and 19,000 kilometers covered on my, on foot on That's expeditions. Crazy. That doesn't include mountain bike projects or fat bike uh, expeditions that I've done. Um, you know, so 
I, I've done multiple unsupported expeditions, you know, Antarctica to the South Pole, uh, Siberia, Kamchatka, the Canadian Arctic. And I've done, I've crossed many of the large deserts, the Sahara, which we talked about earlier. I've also soloed with minimal resupplies across the Atacama Desert in the middle of summer, which is the driest place on earth, and the Gobi Desert in the middle of summer. Those wow. were combined about 3,300 kilometers or so. Um, yeah, I've done a lot of different expeditions. I've crossed Death Valley twice, west to east off-road and north to south off-road both times in the middle of summer, uh, minimal resupplies. And so I, I love doing things at both ends of the thermometer. I love being in deserts in summer and I love being in, wind, uh, in, in, in winter expeditions in the Arctic. And the reason I love that so much is I love being in these landscapes when they're their most most you know what i mean yeah. like the arctic in its most arctic-y and like getting a photo of the sky or a video of what it looks like at minus 60 and uploading that to a you know to a website because we use satellite on all my expeditions to connect with classrooms and being able to give students an opportunity to see what this place looks and feels like at that time of year you know same thing with the deserts like the last big desert i crossed was the namib desert 1,850 kilometers. And I did it with my teammate, Stefano Gregoretti from Italy. And we went south to north, South African border to very close to the Angolan border. And I mean, it was full of wildlife. It was just a, an amazing, incredible place. And to be able to share some of those stories, like, you know, you, over the course of almost 2000 K, you become numb to running past giraffes. I mean, how crazy <laughs> is that? You just are like, Oh, it's just another giraffe. Well, it's just another zebra, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, it's crazy, but that's kind of where it's at. So being in those places in those times and being able to share perspectives and what I'm learning about a geography or a culture or whatever with students who are following along is really sort of why I do what I do. It's one of the reasons I love what I do. Wow, that is so cool. Do you ever have to worry about like predator animals, like lions and, and these animals that could you know, essentially be a threat to you? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, polar bears are the worst, like not the worst, mm. but I mean, polar bears, we're in, the, we're visiting the land of the polar bear. We are guests in the kingdom of the polar bear. Right. So they're the apex hunter on the planet. You, you just, you have to respect wildlife wherever you are. Um, in Namibia, I mean, there was troops of baboons followed us <laughs> at times. You know, you have to be super respectful of the wildlife. And for sure, it's something that I concerned about. But, you know, being in the Amazon, I've seen snakes everywhere and, and uh, you know, spiders of every kind you can imagine all over the planet. I try to avoid those kind of things. Yeah. But, you know, those are it's part of the it's part of the adventure, I guess you could say. It's like you don't have a choice. You're, if you're going to go to these places, you have to, you know, understand that it's part of the deal. Right. Yeah. I, you know what, and some part of me, people who like only stay in the city, I just think it would be so important for them to get out to some of these places and realize like humans are not almighty powerful. Like there are these animals that could devour us in a few bites. Oh my God. Listen, hydraulics, hydraulics, I think, you know, water. Mm. I, I, I've crossed so many uh, you know, rivers and streams uh, in the Arctic and in other areas of the world where the power of current and water is mind-blowing to me. It could just crush you, kill you in an instant. So I think that there's so much about the planet. We are just a little speck. We're an irritant to the planet is what we are. <laughs> That's it, yeah. yeah. It's so true. I I mean, I, it's so funny because sometimes I see these new things or these new stories come up or all these different things. And I think in the bigger picture, like we are just other human beings. Like I even look at my dog and it's negative, you know, 15 Celsius outside. She doesn't need shoes. She can just go and adventure. Like humans are relatively, you know, not, uh, we're adaptable, but we still need our shoes. We need our, all of this equipment when we go out into the cold, same thing in the heat, like we're fragile beings. Yeah, pretty so, much. Sometimes we might need a, a reminder of that, I think. Sometimes humanity, because I think we, you know, we get stuck in our cities and our buildings and we think we we rule everything, but there's there's important uh, factors that are affecting our lives and that we need to be caring about as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So what is like, what is some crazy story or like the craziest thing that has happened? Maybe like the craziest near 
death experience that you've that oh you've had God. on some I've of these had expeditions? So, I've had I've had so many. Like um, it's funny, you know. I, I when I come home from the expeditions, I typically just sort of like empty my brain for a while. Right. And I'm back at home and I'm so stoked to be home and, and, and hanging out with my kids and doing stuff, family adventures and that kind of, that's, I just love doing that stuff. And, um, you know, I, I'm in the process of writing another book right now about okay. some of the stories, but truthfully, like, there's no, like I have a Guinness world record. It's in a filing cabinet. I got tons of stories <laughs> that have been in magazines. They're all tucked away in a filing cabinet. There's nothing on our walls at home that indicates what I do other than art that we've collected or indigenous art that's been um, gifted to me or something like that. Mementos. Other than that, you know, there really is. Uh, so it's a funny thing when I get asked the question, it sometimes takes me time to think of specific stories right because it's not that i take them for granted but it's that they're not um defining you know what i mean but i've had incidences where there was one time in the arctic in 2016 when i broke through some ice that i was scouting on a river up in the arctic and because of our vastly changing environment um there was a a freeze thaw freeze thaw freeze thaw and it caused an overflow um which is normal on rivers but in this case the ice was not stable and I broke through and almost went underneath this, this, you know, with huge current at the very top of this river gorge. And it's a long story, but I got out and it was at the very beginning of an expedition and I got out and I ended up, um, I was with Stefano on that expedition and we ended up having to down trek after I got out again, longer story rolled in the snow. I was in the, I was in the water for two minutes with the current pulling me under. Right. And I changed out. I had a, a custom, like the down, special down pants and suit made for very much colder temperatures. It was only about minus 35. And um, I got into my down suit and we started down trekking and my boots were still soaking wet. There's nothing I could do. They were just filled with water. But dude, I was so happy that I got out of that hole. Because when I went in, when I first broke through and I went in, the first thing that came to my mind is, this is how I'm going to die. And I'm never going to see my kids again. I'm never going to see my family again. As wow. I was struggling to get out when I got out, which was a combination of factors that made it happen. When I got out of that hole, I was laughing as I was rolling in the snow, getting the water off myself. And, and I thought about nothing other than it was very, an interesting moment for me because it really, maybe it was the extreme cold being almost hypothermic, but things broke down into very straightforward, containable thoughts and moments. And it was like, I'm rolling in the snow. I have survived this. Like that's all I was, that's all that was in my mind. And so I was laughing because I couldn't believe that I survived. I change out into my down suit. And I think to myself, I'm probably going to be hypothermic or sub hypothermic, but I think I can survive this. And then we start down trekking through this course. We had to find another way that was super dangerous with unstable ice to get out, but we got out. Then we trekked for two days, one day in a sand, in a snowstorm, and then a second day uh, we camp, set camp at the base of a mountain and waited for our photographer who was way at the other end of this mountain pass photographing caribou to come out and meet with us in snow machines. So we laid in this tent for 24 hours. And as we were walking on that second day to where we were gonna set the camp to be eventually get picked up, the boots froze around my feet because of course they were water. Right. And I thought to myself, I'm probably gonna lose my feet due to frostbite, but I didn't care. I <laughs> honestly did not care. You know why? Because I was gonna see my kids again. Wow. I was going to see my family again. And so I just realized it was very, there's a clarity that happened in that moment because I realized truly, truly, truly what was the most important thing to me in my life. And it was both the most scariest thing that ever happened to me on an expedition or one of the most, I've had some other ones, but that was probably the most scary because this was something that I was so sure I knew what I was doing. I had vast experience, but as you said, Nature is unpredictable and you cannot assume even for a second, you've got shit figured out because you don't have it all figured out, right? You never do. And it was a reminder. So the moment that that happened, that was both a a horrible thing to happen. And it was a gift because it reminded me, it woke me up. Hey dummy, you don't have things figured out. 
get your act together for the next 10 years of projects, right? Like you can't, I was getting comfortable, mm. too comfortable maybe. And number two, that there was no bled lines of what I thought was really important in my life. It was very clear to me that the most critical and most important thing was seeing my kids. Nothing wow. else mattered. And so if I couldn't run after that, I would figure it out. You know what I mean? I would figure all that out if I could survive this. Well, anyhow, long story short, they pick us up. We get, I didn't lose my feet. I had all my toes were frostbitten, but that was the first part of a three-part expedition. The <laughs> second part of the expedition was in Baffin Island in the middle of winter and, and like in February. And I left from that location, flew to Baffin, continued the expedition. Oh my God, I was a mess, but I got it done. I finished that. And then we flew to the Northwest Territories and fat biked 500 kilometers from Wrigley to Fort Good Hope in the middle of February, which was as well icy cold. So wow. I still went on to complete the expedition, even though it started out as potentially the worst thing ever, but it taught me so much, you know, and a humility and humbleness in any sport. It's like you with uh, CrossFit. Part of being a great athlete in CrossFit is knowing your body's limitless potential, but also in the moment what its limits are. Like if you go, if your deadlift is, I don't know what the numbers are, 400 pounds, you know, and you're like, I'm going for 410 today or 420. That might be the day that all the vertebrae go flying out <laughs> the back of your back, right? So, you know, you know, it's instinctive. You know what you need to do, but sometimes your ego gets the better of you and you can't help it, you know? So it's, yeah. it's good to be reminded down then. No, I, I think you touched on a very important point because especially myself as a snowboarder, um, I've been trying to make a little bit of a transition, hopefully get a little bit into backcountry snowboarding. And so I've been doing a lot of research and learning about avalanche awareness. And that's something that they touch on a lot is that you see a lot of these accidents. You do see it a lot with the beginner level, the people who are first getting into the mountains for the first time, but also especially with the experts. And there's actually, um, they've shown that the people who have taken the courses have a higher level of actually experiencing avalanches because the exact same thing, they think that they know it now. And so they get comfortable and they go out so often that they take these higher level risks and that's when, you know, things happen. And so I think it's just such an important reminder, especially coming from you, who's, you know, at the top of your game with all these expeditions that we really need to take into, in, you know, be humble, I guess, with nature and all these factors that they're outside of our control. And even if we've done these things a million times, like we still have to factor in that these unpredictable things can happen. Yes. Yeah. I think that's very well said. You never know how things are going to go. You always hope that they're going to go for the best, but there always has to be an assumption that something could go wrong and not in a way that it scares you out of doing the thing that you're going to do. But you have to be aware also when the risks are too high, mm -hmm. you got to be willing to pull the plug. I've had to do that. That's really difficult to pull the plug after years of planning on something. And all of a sudden you just say, you know what? My gut is telling me this is it. And you got to go with, you got to go, you got to go with that, you know? Yeah, that's that's actually something that I've really wanted to ask you about because I know just even reading through the expeditions that you've done, there's some that are just listed as attempts. How do you deal with that when you've done all this planning, you go and these things don't go to plan or you need to pull the plug? How do you deal with that decision as well as the aftermath of getting the confidence to try these things again or move on to the next project? I'm very fortunate, knock on wood, that in the, you know, 15 or so major expeditions that I've done and an additional 15 or so or 16 with the youth program, that there's only been two really big, I would say, uh, two or three that you say, like, as you would say, attempts that didn't get completed. And the biggest one uh, for me personally was my attempt to cross Kamchatka in the middle of winter in 2018. One is the story I just told you, because even though I went on to complete the expedition, I didn't complete the first part. So mm. it doesn't count, right? It's not completed. But um, when we were crossing Kamchatka, they had a tremendously unusual winter, very unusual winter. And it just was the luck of the draw. It's the way it goes sometimes. And I was with Stefano again, I wasn't solo. And we, it was very difficult and complicated logistics to plan that expedition. Two years of planning our route just to get it exactly how we wanted it, right? And we had planned on using river systems to cross Kamchatka, which is just a wild place, right? Very dense brush. So it's not above the tree line. 
dense brush and then a spine of mountains running down the middle, about two thirds of the thickness of Kamchatka. Kamchatka is like shaped like Florida. And then, you know, okay. we had to cross two thirds, cross some mountains, cross the last third, cross some mountains, and then go to the coast. And so when we started, it was like minus 40, minus 50 on the Western coast. We're, all right, it's exactly what we need. Got onto a river that was frozen. All right, let's just keep trucking. Let's just keep the hammer down. And as we got into the interior, the weather system changed in a very short period. And the snow went from a foot and a half deep to a meter and a half deep of powder. And that corn, you know, cornflake snow that's very granular. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and it just doesn't, you know, almost like the granulated sugar stuff that doesn't compress. Not only that, there was so much snow in such a short period of time and early in the year for them, any of that thin ice on rivers didn't get a chance to freeze anymore because it was so well insulated. Mm. So although it was freaking cold in the middle as well, the, the earlier, the weather wasn't the same as the coast. So all the rivers were open. So we could, we were skiing on rivers and breaking through and on through streams. It was just, so we ended up having to bushwhack, which took us an additional five or six days through one wow. section. Some days going an entire day to move nine kilometers in the direction that we wanted to go. Cause we'd have to unhook our sleds, take our, uh, you know, skis, break down three kilometers, turn around, go back to our sleds, hook back up, go forward. So three kilometers to get three kilometers, you're going nine. Right. So it was a day, you know, you know, it was just a ridiculous effort. We reach the spine of mountains. We get over these mountains. Day 19, we come over the summit of these mountains and uh, realize we were going to need a food resupply for the last 150 kilometers. We had to go not far. And we met up with, that was the first time we, we saw our team. So we saw our, our photographer, my buddy, John, and, and he was at the top of this mountains. Hunters had brought him up, local hunters on snow machines. And so we're talking to him and he said, hi, he goes, hey man, you guys got to talk to, these hunters when you get down the base of this mountain. I said, what are, what are you talking about? He goes, just get down the base of the mountain. So we skied down with our sleds and like we had 110 kilometers left to go. And we're talking to these hunters and, and on the other side of the mountain is three degrees Celsius, three degrees in February. Like, okay. and, and so these hunters, these hunters are telling us the next set of mountains that we were going to go up in and, and the rivers, they said, it's, it's, yeah, you know, it's a death trap. Like going up there, all of the rivers are open and they were kilometers wide, some of them, right? Because it was in a heavy melt. And they said, if you go up there, you're going to need to be rescued. There's no doubt about it. And this yeah. was after, like so much planning and money and time invested, right? But it was the reality. And just when I was talking to these, I had respect for these guys because these are people of the land. They live out there. They, 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 they live off of the land. They know these mountains. And I said to Stefano, I said, dude, it's, we're done. And any and 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 Stefano, he, he he understood. I mean, it's Italian; he doesn't speak very much English, you know. But <laughs> and I explained to him what the hunters in broken Russian were saying to us, and he as well realized that sometimes the hardest decision is the best decision you can make. And although we didn't get to reach our goal, it was so rewarding in so many other ways. And that rarely happens, but it does happen, you know. And I've yeah. had so many successful expeditions over the years that. Like I said about the light switch in the room, right? You got to have those highs and lows. And if, if you're not having fails every now and then, you're not you're not pushing it hard enough. You know, if you're not you're not hanging it out there enough, you're not doing things. You know, in your it, so with whatever that you're passionate about and you love to do, you have to have setbacks. You just have to. It's how yeah. you learn from them. It's how you grow. You know. Right, exactly. No resistance, then it's probably not a path worth pursuing. It's just something too easy. It's not challenging you. Exactly. Now, in in your expeditions, most of them are unsupported, correct? That's uh, a mix. Unsupported a mix, for okay. winter, unsupported mostly or self-contained for winter expeditions. And then summer, like deserts, you can't carry all the water across the desert. It's physically impossible, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and especially if you want to move fast. So, both the long, I figured out about the longest I can go when I'm navigating through mountains and salt flats and sand dunes and da 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 da, da is about 30 to 50K without a resupply. So okay. that's about wow. as long as I'll go on an expedition without taking a resupply. Most times it averages out to about every 20K. 
again, okay. a resupply. And I try to do 70 to 80 a day in the deserts, but that all depends in those deserts. It's 50 degrees Celsius, 55 degrees Celsius. And it all depends on the terrain. Deserts can be heinous, heinous places to be, you know? Oh yeah. I feel like that's like a nightmare of mine. I think when I was a kid, like watching those movies where people are crossing the desert, I would have nightmares of like, oh my God, I'm waking up in the middle of the desert and you can't see anything. And I'm sure you have real stories of like being in that situation. Well, you know, I've had situations uh, where, uh, you know, other close calls where, you know, I was in a, when I was crossing the Atacama, I had to go 50K with a resupply. It was was planned 30K, GPS waypoints that were set. And I'm going completely cross country. And my crew, crew, it was like my buddy, Bob, (laughs) who's the executive director of Impossible Possible, and two of our buddies from Chile. And they were in a four-wheel drive and they were only able to access, get to me. They couldn't go the way that I go, obviously, because it's crazy rough ground, rocks and salt and all this. So they would have to go around through a series of un- mapped mining roads because there's all kinds of mines in Chile there and so they would take these mining roads and eventually get to me and resupply me well they couldn't get to me because the mines had stopped them there's a fence a new fence so they couldn't get to me to resupply me so I'm sitting out there after 50k about to die in the heat and then I could see this plume of smoke coming over the horizon it was dust and it was them barreling across like a an open part of the desert to come and rescue me like you know, you could hear Ride of the Valkyries playing in the, in the background. It was crazy. So <laughs> it must have been a good feeling to see them. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> After all that time. Well, awesome. Okay, so my next question that I have is brought to you by All In's new presenting sponsor, Restoic, and they partner athletes with licensed mental training professionals as well as a mental training app. And now mindset, like I discussed with you, is like something that's just so important, I think, for athletes and for anyone in their lives. And it seems important as well to you in the expeditions that you do. And so the question that they have is about your runs in the Sahara as well as the South Pole when you hit that wall and you reach your limit, what do you say to yourself and how do you push yourself mentally to keep going? Well, you know, I wish it was like a dramatic romantic answer of some (laughs) kind, but there, but it's not really like that for me. You know, when I'm at that point where I feel like I'm not sure if I can go anymore and I sort of give in to those thoughts there's a spark, something happens. Well, maybe, maybe I can, (laughs) you know, and then I take those extra steps and then one thing leads to another. Sometimes it's a motivation um, to get to camp and Mm. uh, just the thought of being in the Arctic and and just knowing that if I can go a little further, just get a little further, set camp and get in that sleeping bag, sleep is going to be just so awesome. Right. So, and sometimes it's, it's in a, you know, I might be in a desert and I know that I'm going to be communicating with students, uh, you know, cause I'll use satellite to do live, like a live call with students, right. Video broadcasts. And I know that it's happening and I want to be able to tell them some kind of incredible story. And so it's motivating for me to get to a destination where camp will be set so that I can, you know, do that call. You know what I mean? So it's different things that motivate me to complete each day. I've, I've been on my hands and knees. I've been on times where I'm, I'm sure I can't continue, but there's always something that there's a little spark of some kind, whether it's in my own head or it's something around me that compels me to go forward. Yeah. And I can only imagine like in your training. So when you hear these things, it's different than I think the discomfort that athletes face in like a game or, um, you know, I'm snowboarding down in, in a competition run and it's scary, but that lasts like two minutes for you. These things are hundreds of days long where you're in uncomfortable positions, not sleeping in a nice bed. How do you actually train, um, your mind to be okay with this discomfort? And in fact, just like seek discomfort. You know, that's, it's a really great question. I got to tell you, you know, for starters, I'll start with the end and I'll go back to the beginning, but right now where I'm at, when I'm on an expedition, that part doesn't seem so bad to me. Like, it's like, (laughs) I got a great sleeping bag. I love sleeping under the stars whenever possible. Winter camping is that part of it. I actually enjoy, you know, the discomfort of waking up when it's minus 50 out or minus 60 is horrible. But once you light that stove, and you have that first <laughs> cup of coffee, it is quite literally one of the greatest feelings on earth, right? So 
there's those, but I think that a lot of the capacity for all that comes from many, many years ago. And, and I, it sort of alludes to your question a little bit, the original question that I worked with a sports psychologist many, many years ago. And I was part of a program with Ottawa University and they were doing a study of resonance theory. I think it was called resonance theory, although I'm not sure. And I was mountain bike racing at the time, cross country. And cross country mountain bike racing is a ridiculously painful thing to do. Like when the gun yeah. goes off, everybody, a hundred bikes are racing for one trail. Everybody's <laughs> going to the single track. And so people are sprinting as hard as they can. And I am not built that way. Like, I'm not a sprinter. I'm not a power person, right? That's all I can do. So, and then I, I stop after that. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So my heart would go, mmm, like, and I hate that feeling like that. I just was like, so full of like lactic acid and junk and everything. Like, I just felt horrible. And the stress of people yelling and pushing each oh. other and, and now everybody does. So the pain and then the long climbs and all that and the, and the crashes, I did that. I raced so much. And then the, the pain of that, when I started ultra running, it was a different pain. Mm. Like no one was yelling at anyone. No one was sprinting to be the first off the line. Everybody was like leaving the start line at a reasonable <laughs> pace, right? Yeah. And I started to think to myself, hey, wait a sec. I mean, relative to that mountain bike racing, this isn't so bad. I mean, as long as you can just, I mean, it was different. It was like a slow bloodletting instead of, you know, the dagger right away, right? So it's like I... I could do it. It was just more in keeping with me. It was something that just fit really well for me. And so I went from ultra marathons to expeditions and it's just the whole thing that goes with is, is something that I actually enjoy. You know, it's yeah. not that beat down for an hour and a half or two and a half hours that just, you know, it's just right. different. Yeah. And I, you know, when I think about myself, even when I said that I'm feel like I'm more of a power athlete, I think that's also, it's mental as well. Like for me, I want to like go hard and like push through in a really short time period. Right. But I find over a long period of time, I, I check out and then I'm not as there, you know, mentally. And I've been reading the book Endure, which is really cool about breaking the two hour marathon and how mental endurance is so important because when that pain sets in, even top athletes, they check out and they're just like, okay, just finish. But you actually need to be focused focusing on your form still, your technique and everything. Yeah. Finishing. But I think it almost happens from a subconscious perspective. I've yeah. been on many expeditions and running where these things start to happen almost automatically. Do okay. you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's sort of a subconscious. Um, uh, so two things are happening at once. You know, it's like when I leave to go on expedition, I know I'm going to be away from my family. Um, I go into a different zone. And I think I learned this in that, in that, thing I was talking about the Ottawa university thing, early days, resonance, all that is I, I have two versions of myself. I have my expedition self and I have my home self. And then as the expedition gets closer, I shift into my expedition self mm. where things are happening around me, but I don't feel time in the same ways. So that when I go away and I'm on expedition and I'm, I'm present in the expedition, but things happen physically and emotionally and mentally on the expedition that I'm able to do that maybe I wouldn't be able to do in normal mode. And right. then I get home, I get home and I slip back into normal mode and it only feels like a week has gone by. Wow. That is, you know, and crazy. so there's no, there's no, um, there's no, I, you know, I've heard often people saying, you know, they'll, they'll get home from a big project or a big race and then there's a depression that sets in and I can mm. respect that completely. Uh, but I don't get that. Like, I, do, I mean, I don't get that. And I, I understand that. I should say I don't, it doesn't happen to me. Yeah. I'm excited yeah. to be home. I'm stoked to be back in a normal routine. And there's no, you know, uh, it's, it's like I was saying at the beginning of our conversations left at the door. And it's like, mm -hmm. I'm not dwelling on, you know, memories of what I did over the last month. That's really cool. And to be at that, that point is, is really awesome because I know, you know, even for myself, you come back from say a three-day competition in CrossFit and your adrenaline is high. You're seeing different people. You have to be on because you might have sponsors there, different things. You come back and it's like that week, it just feels awful. Like it just feels slow and your adrenaline crash and you've just been turned on for so long. Well, I, and, I, and there's a part of me too that loves the trashy feeling after physically. <laughs> Like, I love feeling like I've really given something all I had. 
Like you deserve the rest. Physically empty after. I mm-hmm. love that feeling, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, you know, I felt that uh, most recently we did a west to east crossing of Death Valley National Park. My, there's a guy, a buddy of mine, Will Laughlin, who I do these Death Valley projects with. And he's quite literally just incredible in that environment. And so we did the north south in 2011, summer 2011. And then in summer 2019, we did the west to east and we crossed the Panamints. And so we went over 8,000 feet and then descended to below sea level across the Badwater Basin. When we reached the bottom of the Badwater, like the bottom of the Panamints mountain range was when that 7.0 earthquake hit. And we were like literally 20 kilometers from the epicenter. So we had earthquake, rattlesnakes, bees, dense brush, dehydration, everything that could possibly happen happened in that it took us we went non-stop and i think it took us like 35 hours or something like that through our and then we climbed up over 5200 feet over some other mountains and then down the other side to the finish and um we were done we were done after that was over you know and it was a great feeling i love that feeling that is awesome do you enjoy doing these things more with a group or with others or do you also like to do them just solo like an introspective i like both both, both yeah both for completely different reasons. Yeah. So I've, I've heard some people say that when they are doing these really long distance events solo and these expeditions, they have like crazy, you know, just thoughts, like they're diving into a deeper part of their mind that they, they wouldn't access in everyday life. Have you ever, have you experienced that? Maybe. I mean, you know, I think that when I'm solo, I I find solo, it's simplified. Things are Mm. very simplified and compartmentalized. So in some aspects, for me personally, it can be different for someone else. But for me personally, it's easier to go solo than it is to go right. with someone. So, um, you know, but I'm, I go with someone um, because I think it's a great story to share with young people. I think it's, um, you know, there is those those moments when you're having some highs, when you can share those moments together. So there's there's many, or, or you're trying to accomplish something that working together as two is a safer uh, endeavor than going solo. And so you got to, you got to gravitate or lean towards that safer, you know, uh, uh, you know, way of doing it. You know, um, I think the strangest thing I've ever felt is something called third. I think it, I believe it's called third man syndrome. And I'm not exactly sure if that's the exact term for it, but you can okay. look up it at, look it up after. Yeah. And essentially I've been on expeditions uh, when I think Kamchatka might've been one of them where we were just exhausted from beating our way through this, snow and we're setting camp and I'm, and I'm actually thinking about saying to Stefano, Hey, where's the other guy? You know, and there's no one else there, but you're sure like it's this weird subtle, always there in your mind that there's another person with you. Yeah. And, and I've, I've read about that and I've heard about that from other people. And it's very common apparently in Arctic and Antarctic expeditions. And I've had that on solo expeditions too, where I'm alone. I'm very aware that I'm alone, but for some reason or another, like I'll be thinking, Oh, I've only got two bars left in my bag. I wonder if that's <laughs> enough for both of us. And I'm like, wait a second, there's only one person here. You know, like, yeah. Stuff wow. Like that. that is, yeah, that's really interesting. So what is your, what is your actual training and preparation look like for these expeditions? Cause I can imagine just, you know, from a physical or physiological standpoint, it must be so hard to train for these things. Cause it's not like, Oh, I'm running a marathon. So I'm going to run a half marathon distance. It's like, you're doing things that are hundred days long. Well, I train. So when I was racing ultras, I, and, and I was, uh, you know, doing well when I was racing ultras, I would train sort of like on a marathon style with speed workouts and hill repeats and periodization and all that. I still periodize my programs, but now I train based on elevation gained and I train in very technical terrain only. Okay. So I run almost no road. I've transitioned. I don't really do speed work. I do faster workouts on the trail. These are the things that are working for me now in the style of expeditions that I'm doing right now, because the project's that are left for me to do of the giant bucket list of things that I wanted to do. I've crossed all of the larger deserts. Um, it's mostly Arctic projects and I've got a few jungle projects up my sleeves that I'm really, you know, excited to do. So I'm, I'm in that sort of mode of training now and have been for some time. You know what I mean? I do a lot of strength training as well in the off season. So right now I'd be strength training. 
uh, in the summer, I maintain, so we have a rig in our backyard and, and, you know, the kids use the family uses it <laughs> climbing holds and all that. It was made for us by a buddy of mine in the UK, a company called Beaver fit. And they make these crazy giant steel rigs. And, um, so anyhow, it's in our laneway. When you come to Chelsea, I'll show you it. Yeah. And, uh, so it, we use that, you know, so very functional type training. And my brother, John, uh, and his wife, Sarah, do my functional strength and core programs. So, yeah, yeah, that's so cool. It's always been something I've wondered is like, how would you even approach training? Like, for example, I've, I want to do some sort of kind of challenge this winter. Maybe I've been thinking like maybe a hundred kilometer cross country ski in one day because I'm not a super fast skier. So hundred kilometers for me might take who knows what, depending on what, you know, terrain it is, it might take 12 hours or something like that and to raise money for mental health. And so I've been thinking even, how do I even approach training for that? Because it's not like I'm going to go out and ski for 12 hours as practice. Um, So it's a totally different type of training that I think people are used to. And I assume that it probably takes up a hard, like a large chunk of your day. No. So I don't train uh, because I train on elevation gained in the summer. My goal is like 2000 feet a day. Okay, yeah, 2,500 okay. feet a day vertical, which is, uh, but on really technical terrain. So that would probably add up to about 20 kilometers a day, okay. maybe longer runs on the weekend. But honestly, I, volume doesn't necessarily equal, in some cases it does, but individuals, I think training is a very individual thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think it all comes down to the individual. So, um, you know, for me, I, what's always worked is quality over quantity. Right. You know? Yeah. So it's a mix of things. And I mountain bike still, because I mean, that's my, that's where I come from is mountain biking. So I do that and I ski, I classic ski. Um, I fat bike in the winter. I snowshoe run. I do a lot of different things, but the primary is running is trail running, you know? Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That's, I'm kind of thinking the same, maybe like just technical, like working on my technique of the skiing itself and just knowing because it's 12 hours, like, and I don't have, it's not like I need to finish or it's a hundred kilometers. It's not like I'm like, Oh, I need to do this in eight, eight hours. Like, no, I'll give myself the time. I think it's like, if I can mentally just endure this and just keep going and just pick a pace that I could keep going all day, then I'll get it done. You know, they might be like the, the blisters or these things, but those are all things that you just mentally have to deal with when they come up. Exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. So you started a coffee company. I just saw that you got it into some shops. Like how did that come to be with, you know, when the pandemic started and all of a sudden launching this company? Yeah. So over the years, you know, in supporting my foundation, impossible to possible, uh, we started uh, a guiding company, which uh, takes adults on guided expeditions around the world, really cool adventures, difficult challenges to different places that I've been. So, you know, for example, going into the Atacama Desert and learning about navigation, waypoints, routes, and then running a section of the Atacama Desert over the course of a week um, in, a, in one of the warmest times of year while navigating you know, and huh. so to, to creating these types of projects for people, um, going to Lake Baikal in Siberia in the middle of winter and, and crossing a section of the lake. So really giving someone an opportunity to a legit expedition um, and then a portion of those proceeds going back and helping to keep our impossible to possible youth expeditions free. We always knew with the guiding company called Capic One that we would do something in a storefront but, you know, contrary to what everybody thought, which would be, oh, they're going to sell sleeping bags or tents or whatever. We decided that we would, you know, pursue something that my entire team and I are passionate about. And that's really good coffee. Like we made up a hashtag, no coffee, no expedition, because we just, it's so important to us. Like we're not going anywhere unless there's good coffee. And so we said, well, let's, let's go down that road and start really procuring really good beans and working with an amazing roaster to, um, bring to, together, you know, right now four soon to be five roasts that people will love. And it's been very well received. It's all online. We sell the gear as well to make the coffee. It's all about adventure coffee. And now we're just starting to appear in some retail, local retail in the national capital region. And we'll see where that goes. That's awesome. When you're on these expeditions, what do you actually use to make coffee? I just bought like, um, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's like, um, uh, 
it doesn't use any, like I have to kind of like crank it, I think. And then it uses compression. It makes an espresso and you can do it while camping, but you still need like to heat your water. What do you guys use? Yeah. I, I mean, we do different things. If I'm on an unsupported Arctic expedition, I'll bring a, uh, a press. Like an aero press? Like a, G, a GSI. No, like a GSI oh. French press, right? Oh, okay. Yep. And yep. I have my stove anyhow, cause you got to melt water. Mm, and so right. this is the only additional thing. And then we'll bring bags of coffee and we make <laughs> coffee, like real coffee. We're, we're, I'm like, listen, I'm, if I'm pulling 120 pounds behind me, I'll pull 125 so that I can have good coffee, you know? I like that, that mindset. Extra five pounds. Because you know? I went on a road trip in uh, September. I went to the West Coast and that was the same. I knew that, you know, with, with COVID and everything, we would just be staying in these hotels and they don't really have food or anything and we got to be really safe. But I was like, I'm not sacrificing my coffee. And so yeah. I brought, I bought one of the machines and I would just like heat the water in the hotel room if I could. And I would make my good coffee. I was like, I'm not drinking this hotel coffee. Exactly. Exactly. That's great. And can you run me through a little bit, like just quickly about Impossible to Possible for people who are listening? Yeah. So Impossible to Possible is an organization that was founded in 2008. And it was based on the Running the Sahara expedition that I did, which was made into the film Running the Sahara so people can see it. Um, And the goal was to create an organization where we would take young people, 16 to 21 years of age, on expeditions of their own that were learning based, that were tied to a subject. And those expeditions would be 100% free. So, so cool. anyone that's part of that expedition, there is no cost, whether it's the schools and the students who are following along and participating in the online educational forum or the kids that are on the expedition, it's totally cost-free. And so that was the, that was the goal with the, with the expedition. That's, that's really cool. the organization. And so something I've always been curious about, um, because I, I hear people talk about these crazy adventures, but they never really expand on how does it actually work that like, this is your full-time thing. And I know like you're gone a hundred and some days in the, in the desert. How does, how do these things, these projects like come to be and get funded? Oh, well, you know, my own expeditions, um, Get, are funded. I'm, I'm very fortunate by uh, sponsors and then partners that I work with. But every one of my partners that I work with are ones, they're friends. They're people that I've worked with for years, you know, um, you know, Canada Goose being one and others, Osprey Packs, that have been with me um, and have supported what I've been doing. And, and you build friendships, right, with, with, these, with these companies and with the people that are there. Impossible to Possible is funded by its own sponsors mainly, but we do other events too, you know, to help support. And and my partners as well help to support Impossible to Possible. So it's this crazy mix of stuff. And then we take a little bit of, you know, our proceeds from CAPIC will go to a portion of our proceeds as well to support. So we do all these different things to try and do this thing that's our passion, which is Impossible to Possible, yeah. you know? Seems like a cool ecosystem that you have created that gives back all to that main mission. Yeah. That is awesome. All right. So I end, I always end the podcast with like some quick questions. My okay. first one is, do you have a favorite quote, mantra, or belief that, that you could share with us? You know, I sort of came up with this one and people laugh at me when I say it, but I'll say it anyhow, that the most difficult challenges are 90% mental and the other 10% is all in our heads. So I've said that <laughs> so many times that it makes people crazy, but it's true. I believe it. So uh, I know I like that. That's perfect. And what's one daily habit that's like the biggest game changer in your life? Something you do every day. Oh, I mean, we just talked about it. I, first thing I do when I get up, coffee. There's nothing, there's no <laughs> existence. Like the, the the kids don't talk to me. Nobody talks to me before there's coffee. You know? <laughs> He's just like us, everybody. He just drinks yeah. coffee and that's how he starts his day. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. All right, this last one, sometimes people answer really quickly and some pe- times it takes a little bit of thought, but if you're looking back, you know, you're 90 years old, you're looking back on your life. If you could describe what you want your legacy to be in one word, what would that one word be? Well, two words, a good dad. <laughs> mm, I like you know, that. So that, you know, I want my kids to grow up knowing that they can do anything and that, you know, that they're empowered to do the things that they want to do, you know, right. that they, that they feel that, uh, that their potential has no limits, you know, like that's, if I can get them to that point, my wife and I, Kathy and I, if we can get them to that point, we're happy, you know? That's awesome. And it seems like you're doing that as well with a lot of, of the youth and impossible to possible. 
trying. <laughs> I love it. So, um, last thing is where can people find you if they want to learn more about your expeditions and possible possible, uh, possible as well as the coffee. So, uh, and then all my social channels are attached to that. And then you'll be able to figure things out from there. You can <laughs> find Capiguan and all that stuff. Yeah. I'll put your website in the show notes. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ray, for coming on. It's been great to chat and, uh, and learn more just about these, these journeys and these crazy stories that you have. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Hey, I think that the greatest gift in life is presence. So thank you so much for gracing me with your presence of tuning in to this episode. Now, something that I would appreciate a ton and would help this podcast keep growing is if you, one, take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your social media so more people can find the podcast and hopefully we can help impact more people. As well as number two is if you can leave a rating and a written review. That means so much. And once again, thank you for being here.